The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're moving on to Joseph Goldstein's wonderful book, Mindfulness, the Practical Guide to Awakening. Quite a wonderful book for those of you who haven't looked at it. So feel free to get yourself a copy if you want. But you don't need to have a copy. So we're just working through it chapter by chapter. We're on chapter 23 and 24. And it's this section of the Buddhist teachings where he's giving us maps that we use to better understand our actual experience. So sometimes people get this idea that concepts are bad. No, concepts are quite useful. What I just said is a concept. Concepts are useful. So concepts can be useful or they can be diluting. And part of it is, like, does the concept align? So these maps are quite useful if used in the right way. So the map we're working with tonight is the map called the the six sense spheres or the six sense gates. So the Buddha is talking about seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. There is no other way that we know the world, or this, experience of being a human being, other than knowing thought, or knowing mental activity, knowing sound, knowing sight, knowing smell, knowing taste, and knowing touch. So we've been talking about this uh, in the previous weeks in terms of five aggregates. It's a slightly different map. So get a sense that this world this experience is never more than knowing these six sensitivities. The mind, or whatever you want to call this, is sensitive in only six ways. It knows mental activity, memory, thought, mood, emotion. It knows sight. It knows sound, smells, tastes, touches. And this whole thing we call my life is never more than these six things being known, some combination of these six things being known. And even in a more exacting, refined way, these are only known one moment at a time. Because normally we think, ah, oh, it's pretty rich, these six things. But in any actual moment, it's just a sound being known, or a sight being known, or a thought being known, or a smell being known. Just one thing after another. And we call that sense contact. So somebody asks you, and we've been I've been making fun of like you could have a quiz, you know, what is this? You could say, well this is a moment of sense contact. The sensitivity of the mind, which is only sensitive in these six ways, is having contact with the sight, contact with the thought, contact with the sound smell, a taste, or a touch. Now that's not what we normally think of as my life. You know, a series of sense contacts. But you see that that's actually the case, right? Does that make sense? So so much of uh, our practice of bringing more wisdom, more of a continuity of mindful awareness to life, is a profound deconstruction, sort of a deflation, 
because concepts are both deluding, they're seductive and deluding, and they can create the appearance of things being other than they actually are. So this is what in Buddhism we call delusion. When things, or this, life, the world, has an appearance that is other than the way it actually is. And this happens all the time. I mean, we catch ourselves in delusion all the time. So the fact that the mind can be deluded shouldn't surprise us. I mean, just a simple example is we can be in the middle of a dream, feels very real, and then we wake up and we realize, oh, that was just a dream. But two minutes ago, it wasn't just a dream. It was as real as much as reality ever is. Or we can think we're just the greatest thing on earth, and then we realize we've had snot on our face the last two hours, and we feel humiliated, right? And so that whole delusion that we're God's gift to humankind just immediately disappears. We realize, oh, we were deluded. I was a fool. Didn't even think to check. I've been noticing, I I don't think of myself as senile, but I've been noticing I've been leaving my zipper down. <laughs> and it seems the, the odds that it's down has been going up as I've moved through my 50s. Like, oh God, what's in store for me? I'm thinking of putting a sign next to the urinal. Check. <laughs> don't forget. I always think... You know, so you see me sometimes just picking, making sure it's up in front of the group. So this is really uh, amazing, these things. The other day, uh, I looked at my hand and I realized my ring was gone. I had it. We were just traveling. We were on the East Coast. And I started looking all around for it. And then I noticed it was on the wrong hand. I mean, there's a reason for that, but it completely threw me, and it took me, you know, five minutes before it occurred to me it was on the other hand. So, we're deluded a lot of the time. So, it should beg the question, what am I deluded about now? Right, because the whole, the whole point of delusion is we don't know we're deluded when we're deluded. That's what it means to be deluded. It never occurs to us when we're deluded that we're deluded. It's only after that bubble has been popped do we realize, oh yeah, I was deluded. I thought it was this way, but in fact it was other than how I thought it was. I thought this person was this way, but in fact he or she is other than what I thought. So this is how it is with what we take this to be. So the Buddha offers us some maps, some ways of reflecting in order to go beyond the mind's tendency, very strong tendency to take things to be other than what they are. Even that alone would be pretty transforming. If we could just sustain that 
possibility that things are other than what they appear to be. You see, if we just had that, that things are perhaps other than what they appear to be, you see, naturally the mind would be more interested, less superficial. And you know, when you catch yourself being deluded, like your zipper's down or something like that, all of a sudden the mind becomes a little bit more humble and vigilant. You know, like, like, pay attention. I might not really get what's going on. I wonder what else I don't get that I'm missing right here. So much of practice, mindful, or this path of awakening taught by the Buddha is this respect for cultivating clarity because we clearly recognize more and more in a humiliating way, in a good way, but humiliating way, how deluded the mind is, how the mind has been seduced by the appearance of things content with the appearance of things and not interested in settling, investigating, opening, you know, going beyond the appearance. Joseph begins this chapter by quoting the Buddha. He says, Practitioners I will teach you the all. So you think he's going to give you some huge metaphysical truth. And what practitioners is the all? It is the eye and form, the ear and sound, the nose and odors, the tongue and tastes, the body and tactile objects, the mind and mental phenomena. This is called the all. So there's no place in that for good and bad, me and you, this and that. It's just sound being known, sight being known, smells being known, taste being known, touches being known, and mental activity being known, mental phenomena being known. And in the discourse, <clears throat> this whole book is about this one talk. It's not clear. Historically, whether it was one talk or later, they collected several of the talks the Buddha gave about mindfulness. But in any case, it's a collection of teachings on mindfulness from the Buddha. <clears throat> so it's one of the more well-known talks. And um, the Buddha is offering 13 things to be mindful of. And one of them is this map of the six senses, or the six senses. And he says, in the, that section, in regard to dhammas, these categories of experience, dhammas, mean, dhammas means in this context, in regard to these categories of experience, one abides contemplating these categories in terms of the six internal and external sense spheres. So internal means the sensitivity of the eye, external are the visual forms that are known by the sensitivity. Sensitivity of the ear is an internal. The external would be the sound that the ear hears. So he pairs up 
the organ of sensitivity with the object that that organ is sensitive to. In terms of the six internal and external sense spheres, sense gates, and how does one abide contemplating these categories of experience in terms of these six internal and external sense spheres? Here one knows the eye, right, the sensitive organ. One knows forms, what the eye sees. One knows the fetter that arises dependent on both, right? So the fetter, this means that when there is sensitivity, right, I have a working eye that sees visual forms, and then stuff happens. As soon as I see somebody, or hear something, or smell something, or taste something, or touch something, or think something, then stuff arises. Part of what arises in conjunction with that contact is, could be called a fetter, meaning that it confuses the mind. It creates the appearance that leads the mind to grasp, to get tight, to struggle with life, to struggle with things. There's another uh, famous discourse, I'll continue reading this in a moment, where it's one of the interesting discourses because in this discourse, a lay person is actually sort of the wise person. Normally, either a monk or a nun in these ancient stories that has sort of a starring role. In this case, uh, there was this lay person, Chitta, which is his name was. And after the, he would go visit all these wandering ascetics and Buddhist monks and nuns and just listen to their conversations. They'd go out early in the morning, collect their alms food, right? The monks and nuns would walk with the balls. They'd go back, they'd eat. And then they'd talk about practice for a little bit before they'd separate and go to their own little hut or place to practice for the rest of the day and into the evening. And then they'd meet again in the morning to go out for their meal again. So he'd go after their meal and just be part of their discussion. And so a bunch of monks were discussing, like, you know, I'm a human being. I'm sensitive to sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and I, and my thoughts. And they were discussing like, what's actually the problem? Like, there is suffering that was clear to them. Is it that I'm sensitive? Is that the problem? Like, if only I didn't see, if only I didn't hear, if only I didn't touch, if only I didn't think. Or is it the fact that there are interesting objects to see, interesting sounds to hear, interesting things to touch? Interesting thoughts to think. So they were having this debate. Like, is it the problem that there are all these interesting objects in experience? Or is it the problem that I'm sensitive to interesting objects or disgusting objects? And so they're having this debate and they see this man there, this lay person, and they had the wherewithal to ask, well, what do you think? And so Chitta gives this answer that he had heard from his teacher, which is one of the better-known monks, or maybe heard it from the Buddha, I forget now. But he, he said, well, it's a little bit like you're asking me, there are two ox, you know, a black ox and a white ox. And they're, you know how when the ox are pulling a cart, they yoke them together, they either tie them together or they have that wooden thing that keeps them in line together. And, and so he said to the monks there, so, it's like asking, is the white ox a yoke or a fetter 
a burden to the black hawk, or is the black hawk a burden to the white hawk? And they, they understood both. No, neither one is the burden to the other. The problem is that they're tied together with this rope or this yoke. That's the problem. So it's the same thing with the eye and the objects that we see and the sound, uh, the ear and the sounds that we hear. The same thing with sense experience. It's not the fact that we think or see or hear or touch or smell or taste. The problem is what arises in conjunction with those, that, those pairs of seeing or sensitivity and sight. Sensitive, sensitivity to sound and hearing. What it does arise? Well, greed and aversion, right? And delusion. The mind gets reactive. When I see something, I react to what I see. If it's a neutral thing I see, I react by, ah, it doesn't matter. That's a reaction. Or if I see something attractive and I lean forward, wanting it, wanting more of it, that's a reaction. Or if it's a repulsive thing I see, I turn away. But that's a reaction. So the problem with life isn't that we're sensitive, isn't that we're experiencing whatever we're experiencing. The problem is this fetter that arises in conjunction with sensitivity. That's what we can learn about. That's what this whole practice is about. So now the Buddha is going to talk about that. So we're going back to this discourse the Buddha gave on mindfulness. And he's one of the 13 meditation practices he's giving is this meditation on the six sense gates. He's asking us, like he did tonight in the guided sit, to be aware that in any, as we're living our life, seeing is being known. Sensations are being known. Hearing is being known. Smelling, tasting is being known. Thinking is being known. So just to break it down, and that these things, it's a natural process, not something we turn on and off. The sensitivity is inherent for us. So, he says, first we know there's the eye, one knows the form, one knows the fetter that arises dependent on both, and one also knows how an unarisen fetter can arise and how an arisen fetter can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed fetter can be prevented. So, just to give an example, let's say you're going to go home, and uh, there's a lot of things at home that push your buttons. It's over here, there's a pile of bills that you've been trying to ignore, that are calling out for attention, and there's a dirty bathroom over here, dirty laundry there, these things over here that push these other buttons and all these things, right? That you're going to experience. You're going to see your connected in your home. So, how can we go home? Or maybe they're beautiful things, you know, that you're really attracted to. So, either way, you're going to be triggered or even just walking out of this building or getting into traffic. You're going to have countless sense experiences that will trigger greed and aversion and delusion. So the question is, how is it possible for <clears throat> us as human beings to go home or to be in this place of having sense experience without being confused by the fetters that arise, the greed, the aversion, the, the delusion? 
what do we do? Well, whatever we do, we can do it right now, right? This is a great thing about the practice. We can always figure it out right now. We don't have to figure out theoretically, like, what am I going to do when I get home? Because right now, we're hearing a sound or seeing a sight or having a thought that's being known. And right now, with each sense contact, sense experience, there's a feeling, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And the question is, can the mind leave it alone? How, how is that possible? Is that possible? Now it starts to make sense, like, why we practice formally when we set aside 30 minutes or 45 minutes in the morning, for example, why we do that in a way that makes things simple. Like we find a relatively quiet place, a relatively pleasant place. We sit in a relatively comfortable way. Why? We want to give ourselves a fighting chance to be right in the middle of sense experiences coming and going, sense contact, one after another, never ceasing. Has sense contact ever, ever ceased in your life? Whether you're in a flotation tank, <laughs> Richard is our local flotation tank expert over here, where we've reduced a lot, but still, one moment of sense contact after another, or you're at the Mall of America, or you're you know, wherever you might be, state fair, yeah, even more of the state fair. Talk about a overindulgence of sense experience. I find it hard to be there these days. So wherever we might be, it's one sense contact after another. But in the formal sitting time, where we've optimized experience by keeping it simple and relatively pleasant, then we see, well, can I be right in the middle? Can I actually, instead of dulling the sensitivity, <clears throat> can I sharpen the sensitivity, increase, like, refine the mind sensitivity, highlight it, stabilize it, so that I can see the inclination to react and see that that's just some, that's another sense contact. So basically, practice letting one sense contact after another arise, seeing, hearing, smelling, taking, it doesn't matter. Some meditation techniques, we try to focus the attention so we're only no, noticing one stream of sense contact. We're just feeling the touching of the air going in and out of the nostrils, for example. So we've narrowed our whole existence down like if the concentration is good, the only thing the mind is knowing is touching at the nostrils. You know, a relatively cool touching as the air is going in, and then a relatively warm touching as the air goes out of the lungs, out of the nostrils. Cool, warm. It's a pretty simple experience. And then, so it's one moment of contact, touching, 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 touching after another, and letting it be. So the Freedom is no matter what the sense contact is, not forgetting that it's just sense contact. It's a pleasant sense contact, neutral sense contact, an unpleasant sense contact. And of course, there's a lot of conditioning, a lot of dispositional energy around pleasant and unpleasant 
in these calls. So we'll want to grab a hold of it if it's pleasant and push it away. But just because we're inclined to grab pleasant or push away unpleasant or ignore nukko doesn't mean we have to. So in a way we're rewiring the brain, rewiring the mind to be intimate, to be right in the middle, whether we're using a particular object like mindfulness of the breath at the nostril, or we're practicing what we might call open attention. So whatever we're knowing in the moment, it's just what's predominant, what in a sense gets the attention. That's the object of meditation in that moment. But in the next moment, it may be a sound. In the next moment, it may be a hiccup. In the next moment, it may be the pressure of the buttocks on the cushion or chair. The next moment, it might be a thought being. But whatever that moment is, whatever that sense contact is, it's just that. It's just a feeling, pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of it in that moment. And that's what the Buddha means when he says that we have an eye, sensitive eye, seeing a form. One knows the fetter that arises, dependent on that contact. So we're not fooled. When I see Tom over there, there's sense contact. There's a feeling. I don't have to be fooled, confused by the pleasant feeling. It's just a pleasant feeling. That's just the next moment of sense contact. I don't personalize the feeling. It's a feeling, you know, whatever it is. You see dog poop on the sidewalk in front of your house or apartment. You know, it's an unpleasant. Why didn't they... Who's, who's the owner of that dog? Whatever. But it's just, it can be just that unpleasant feeling. Okay, this is being known. It doesn't mean you're not going to do something about it. That will just be what that is, being known. So we know the fetter that arises. We know how that fetter gets fed, how it can be starved, how it can be prevented from arising, because we're watching. So someday, when we're fully enlightened, we'll see dog poop on the sidewalk, and there won't be a, any aversion arising. Right? That would be great. Or if there's aversion arising, there won't be any taking of that aversion, the mind won't be taking that aversion personally. It's just aversion being known. It's just disgust being known. So we won't proliferate around it, make a big deal of it. It's just what it, it's just what it is. It's the not understanding sense these six sense states and how experience comes to be and how it's all happening on its own that causes this whole mass of suffering, this whole weight that we sometimes experience as human beings. This is the Buddha talking about that. <clears throat> this is a teaching the Buddha gave many, many times in different ways, always slightly different. Generally, the whole category is called the Buddhist teachings on dependent origination or co-dependent arising or co-dependent co-arising, but how this whole thing comes to be, this thing we call my life, this experience. He says, and what practitioners is the origin of the world? Now remember the world, he's not talking about like the United States and Canada and this planet. 
circling the sun. He's not talking about it. When he talks about the world, he's talking about this immediate direct experience. This is the world. There's nothing outside of this. We imagine, you know, there's the earth somewhere below us or whatever. But whatever there is, it's this. And where does this exist, by the way? Where is this? This, whatever we're experiencing, is just a moment of mind. In Buddhism, we call this a moment of mind. Now, we're not saying there isn't anything else. All we're saying is that this is a moment of mind. The mind is knowing these six things, right? And if you think there's more to it, that's a thought being known here, right? That's just a thought being known here. So it's really important. So when the Buddha talks about the world, he's talking about this subjective experience that each human being is having right now. This is the world. And he's not trying to metaphysically convince you that there isn't anything else or there is something else. He's just not going there because it's not relevant. What's relevant is there is a human being that's experiencing this. And a lot of time in the experience of this, there is suffering. And that's our concern. The fact that there is this immediate subjective experience of stress. And that's what the Buddha is addressing. Not metaphysical issues. He's interested in the subjective experience of suffering or stress, mental suffering, the psychic weight that we feel at times, or a lot of times, or whenever we happen to look. To some degree, that psychic weight is there until it's not there, and you're free. So, And what, practitioners, is the origin of the world? Independence on the eye and form. High consciousness arises. Sensitivity of the eye, sight to be seen. So that's true with all the other six senses. Independence on the eye informs eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, feeling comes to be. You can't have a sense contact without there being a feeling. Pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutrality. There's always a feeling with every sight, sound, smell, touch, taste, and thought. Feeling comes to be. With feeling as a condition, it comes back. Craving, right? Whenever there's a feeling, there's a sense, a conditioned sense. This is not personal. You're not doing this. Whenever you have sense contact and there's a feeling, the mind is inclined do something with that feeling. So that initial inclination we call craving. So when it's neutral, we crave to ignore it. Because it's neutral. It doesn't matter to me. That's what we mean by neutral. When it's pleasant, the inclination is to want it to last, to hold on to it. When it's unpleasant, the conditioned tendency is to want to get away from it. Now when we act on that craving, we call it clinging. When the mind decides to do something because it's neutral, I'm really going to ignore it and just pretend it ain't there. That's it's clinging to the idea, acting on the idea that it doesn't matter. When it's pleasant and we reach for it, that's clinging. When it's unpleasant and we push it away, that's clinging. So clinging or grasping is when the mind acts 
on the craving. Act on the feeling. And then that leads to becoming. So that's the next thing he talks about. Existence. We become the person who's ignoring something. We become the person who's holding on to something pleasant. We become the person who's rejected something unpleasant. So quite literally, psychologically, subjectively, we've taken birth. So that's the next thing. We take first a birth as a person who doesn't like this, who's rejected this, who's getting away from this, who's going towards this, who's ignoring that other thing. So this whole subjective experience of me, I'm the one, this is who we take ourselves to be. I'm the one who doesn't like this, who likes that, who ignores that. This is actually the very definition of this subjective experience itself. I'm the one who likes, dislikes, or doesn't care about different things. And once we've taken birth, the next step, the next thing the Buddha says in this teaching is we set in motion this whole mass of suffering. This whole dynamic of struggling with experience that has all kinds of reverberations. When I'm struggling with my experiences, I start creating problems for those people around me. I start invading countries or start oppressing other people or start, you know, whatever. But we start creating problems not only for ourselves but everybody around us because we're acting with greed and aversion and delusion. All based on this subjective experience. All based on being confused by the feelings, feelings that arise with sense contact. Joseph quotes this uh, Buddhist nun from Japan. She was the abbess of a monastery. This is from long ago. Very beautiful passage. She says, "And then she saw the then she saw that arising arose, right? So some sense contact arising. That contact arose, abided, and fell away." Because that's what happens. A sound doesn't last forever. A sight doesn't last forever. A sensation doesn't last forever. It is there. It arises. It abides. And it passes away. It seems like like this pressure that I'm feeling now pushing down, touching my hand. It feels like this pressure is con- constant. Is it? No, it's a river. It's a changing one moment of the experience of pressure followed by a different moment of pressure. Now that second moment of pressure may have the appearance of being very similar to the previous moment of pressure, but they're different moments of pressure being known. Same with any sense experience. It's a changing process. Nothing is constant. Same with mood that may seem constant then when we carefully observe a mood, we see it's also a changing dynamic. Nothing holds still in this world. This is one of the characteristics that we notice when we start paying close attention to the waking God. Everything is in motion. We could have a contest. It would be kind of a good contest. Put our money together have a billion dollars, set it aside to anybody 
who can prove, you know, that things are constant, get that. Because people start paying attention. And they would find that everything, absolutely everything, is in process. There is nothing fixed. Any physicist will tell you that, you know, from a theoretical physics point of view, everything's in motion. So this isn't, like, new. Maybe the Buddha, you know, he didn't have the help of modern physics to, talk, to sort of rely on. He just paid attention to his own experience. So, first she sees this dynamic, that everything is arising, it abides, it falls away. She saw that knowing this, uh, she saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. So even the consciousness is impermanent, because this is very tricky. We think, we can kind of get, right, you might maybe are in this place right now, we can kind of get that, okay, everything I see, smell, taste, touch, and think comes and goes. But the knowing seems to be conscious, uh, constant. The consciousness itself, that seems constant. But the fact is, consciousness also arises to know this touch. That consciousness is specific to the sensitivity in the hand making contact. Consciousness comes and goes with each thing, right? Because if, for example, I lose my eye, is that eye consciousness still there? No, it rises in conjunction with the sensitivity and the visual form to be seen. So it's not like we could say that there's just this consciousness, this me, I'm just this pure awareness. But the Buddha isn't giving the sense of self any place to get established. Because he's, he's asking us to turn the attention toward this as a natural process, a dynamic process. And that every aspect of this is part of that dynamic natural process. There's nothing out of that dynamic natural process. That's what he's aiming the mind for. So this is what she, this is what this nun experiences. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, there's a moment of knowing, and then passed away. Consciousness comes and goes. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. That there's nothing outside of Something being known that arises, abides for a moment, and passes away. Something being known, arising, and passes away. So then she realizes this is another insight. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held. Nothing to lean upon at all. And no one leaning, right? Because there's nothing outside of a moment of sense contact being known. A moment of sense contact being known. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. It's a very poetic and beautiful line, isn't it? <clears throat> then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held. Nothing to lean upon at all and no one leaning, and she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. 
a beautiful quote from Joseph's book. And this is really what we're being invited to do. To see things as they are and to realize that there's nothing outside of what the mind is directly and immediately experiencing. So we no longer presuppose there's more than what we're actually seeing. We're, in a sense, coming into allegiance with direct, immediate experience, not what we imagine or were told is true or want to be true, but what actually is true. Can we understand what is true? Can we live in alignment, in allegiance with what is true? And can we let go of everything else? Let go of the mind's dependence on anything beyond that. This is the freedom that the Buddha points to. Now, if this talk doesn't make any sense, that's okay. Because the key is to actually pick up this reflection. To take this map that's called the sixth sense gate. Five physical senses. And the mind, knowing the activity of the mind. So the mind or consciousness knows sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. Five physical senses. Consciousness knows thought or mood or emotion. Right? So the activity of mind. It knows these six things. If we practice really uh, rounding the mindfulness in this way and realizing that there's nothing outside of these six things being known, the mind becomes very pure and simple and free. And we begin to intuit a way of being, a way of being right in the middle of this life, like they say at the end of that line, falling into the midst of everything. So not a disconnected, sort of lofty, transcendent state where everything's perfect. Right in the middle of everything, but not pushed around, not burdened. So free to love, free to respond, free to give and and receive freely. So I'll leave it here so that there's some time to share. I'll be gone next week. Ramesh will be teaching, a wonderful community member and teacher here at Common Ground. We'll be teaching next Sunday night. I'll be leading the Common Ground nine-day retreat. So every Labor Day uh, period, we do a nine-day residential retreat at a Catholic retreat center. We, we use Holy Spirit. Some of you maybe are going to be on that retreat. So Ramesh will teach next week, but I'll pick it up the following Sunday. I think it's the 7th of September. We'll do one more talk uh, on this area, in this area. But there's some time now if you have any questions or comments from your own practice that I can share with the group. What comes to mind? Oh, there it is. Mm-hmm. But why wouldn't they fit under the six categories? So extrasensory perception just means that the capacity for hearing is extraordinary, meaning not experienced by ordinary folks. Sight is extraordinary. Awareness of mind, the mind activity is extraordinary. So if in fact there are people who have capacities that are well beyond what is ordinary, it would still fit within the six categories. Because any kind of intuition is just knowing mind activity. So consciousness, the sort of sensitivity to mental activity being known, that's just another kind of contact. Sensitivity of the mind to mental activity 
is being known. So the mind, the knowing mind can make contact with sight, or sound, or smell, or taste, or touch, or thought. Even very refined food of thought. Beyond language. But from your subjective experience, when you say my car is out there, that's a thought being known. And if there's a visceral sense, no, no, it's really out there, that, that's a visceral experience being known. And if you walk out there and see a car that looks like yours, that's also just that experience being known. So here's the thing. The conceptual universe is very seductive. But that's not our actual experience. Our actual experience is sense contact being known. That's our actual experience. And we can learn to live with that. And when we talk with other people, we don't forget how to participate in this conceptual universe. It's not like we become idiots and we don't know how to sort of relate in this consensual reality way. We can live in both of those worlds. This is a, uh, a skillful means. Think about it this way. The Buddha is not trying to convince us about metaphysical reality. Is there, does CD have a car out there or not? You know, does that car disappear when you come in here? And only reappears when we, you know, he's not going there at all. Because whatever that car is or was or will be, it's going to be a moment of seeing being known, hearing being known, telling being, you know, thought being known. It will never be anything beyond that subjective experience of sense contact being known. Even if you get in there, no, it's, God damn it, it's here, I'm touching it. You know, I put, but all of that is just touch being known, sight being known, thought being known. So from a subjective point of view, it's just the sense contact being known. And again, the key is to reflect in this way and to see the effect on the mind. Not to try to figure out, figure this out conceptually, but just to put it into practice and see directly what does this do to your mind. Does it lighten everything up, or does it create more psychic weight for you? That's really what we're being invited to do. Yeah, Max. Well, yeah, because not knowing is a kind of dukkha. Because the sensitivity is inherent, so the mind has to do something to not know. So the distractedness, or the denial, or the superficiality is stressful. Now, this is a subtle level of stress. It's not necessarily easy to immediately detect. But the more we practice, the more we feel that anything short of being wide open is stressful. So that means being fully exposed to life, to what comes and goes in life. That's, that's the easy way. And to be defended is the hard way. So this is the great thing about mindfulness is it pulls us in. I think I mentioned this in a previous class. It's like uh, the simile that's used is the snake going into a pipe. Like once you start in, it's better just to keep going because it's not so easy to back up. Or a porcupine going down a drain pipe. You know, once you go in, you just keep going. Because you become more and more sensitive, which feels challenging to be so exposed and raw, that it's in the direction of uh, non-distraction, 
non-aversion and non-greed, non-reactivity to to the world, sense experience. And that's the freedom the Buddha is pointing to. Not that everything will be pleasant, perfect, but that the heart can realize a non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion with the all. No, no, you're bringing, I forget your name, Kyle. Yeah, Kyle's bringing up a really important point because this really does come up. We start to get it and we want to share it. We want to tell other people about it. But the best thing to do, I mean, it's not wrong, but it probably likely to fall on sort of deaf ears because it's subtle and it's counterintuitive. So the best thing to do is to really integrate it so we can live it and model it. And then people go, what's Kyle doing? <laughs> you know, why, why is his mind so nimble and light and happy and loving? You know, what's he doing? And they're asked you, you know, traditionally in the Buddhist tradition, you don't answer unless somebody asks you three times, right? Because you want to make sure they really want to know. They're not just being polite, but they really want to know. And then you find the right time and place and way to talk about it. And it, even then it may not be so easy. I mean, even in the tradition of the Buddha, you know, so he, you know, as legend goes at least, you know, had all the appropriate personality skills to do a good job articulating the insights that he had come to realize. But, you know, the first person he interacted with after his insight, he totally blew it, at least as the story goes. You know, the person asked, like, what's going on with you? You know, kind of notice that this guy looks a little different or something special about this guy. And he, the Buddha sort of launched into this, you know, kind of extraordinary description and the, and the text that says, in the sutta, it says, uh, may it be so. And the guy kind of went off the other way, like, <laughs> okay, whatever you say. Luckily, he had like several days before he met his friends that he thought, well, maybe they'll understand. And he kind of organized like how he was going to talk about it. And then the first Dharma talk he gave to these five friends who were, you know, serious spiritual aspirants themselves, one of them got what the Buddha was pointing to. And it's in the Buddhist tradition, it's a big deal because what it meant is what somebody had come to understand that the articulation of it could actually be useful for another person. So we're all benefiting from the Buddha's articulation. I couldn't do what I'm doing right now without the Buddha's articulation. I'm totally, my teaching is totally dependent on his articulation, and then the lineage of teachers who have benefited from the Buddha's articulation, and then their re-articulation is really just a restatement of what the Buddha articulated. So we're all using this articulation and then trying to, you know, with whatever integrity integrity we have about the practice, we're reflecting directly immediately. And like you said, Kyle, we are doing it alone. It is a personal practice but it's a personal practice that really benefits from doing with other people doing their personal practice. Because we're supported by the fact that other people are interested. It gives us confidence that this is a worthwhile thing to do, that other seemingly reasonable people are interested in doing it too. That really helps. And uh, 
you know, you can plant seeds, you can say a few things. Sometimes it will be a little off. Sometimes it might feel just right, what we say to our friends. But generally, because a lot of joy arises when we start understanding this, we tend to oversell it. So just knowing that that's the tendency, it's better just to keep in mind to undersell it. Don't push it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't start with a talk like tonight because this is a, this is a more subtle end of the practice. But what you could start with is mindfulness-based stress reduction. And fortunately, it's becoming very much commonplace in our culture now. And so that's just, you know, from Kyle's comment, you know, that's a nice way to point people who we care a lot about, who we feel would benefit from the practice, is to use these teachings in a very pragmatic way to manage stress. And then they might sort of get the hook and get interested and want to go deeper, or they might not. But at, at least on this pragmatic level, they can benefit from some of the, the value of the practice. In any case, it's 8.30, so we need to leave it here. Just take a moment to take a breath together and to let go of the words. <clears throat> Remember, you don't need to hold the words. If they keep coming back, then work with them. Not just let things go. Just appreciate the community, teachings. Appreciate the interest in this mind to look deeply. To be inspired to be a more loving and wise human being as an act of generosity. Not just a gift to ourselves, of course, but a way of contributing to the well-being of all beings. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.